Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This podcast is part of the Darkness Collective. Visit darkness.org to discover more shows like this one. The Darkness Awaits. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> Let's go for a ride. There are many stories here. Like this place. Like many things here. Some have become lost. But all lost things yearn to be found. And all stories long to be told. I've searched through my building. Gathering up stories. From every floor. From the basement to the ninth story, and every floor in between. Stories of choice, of the hopeless, the redeemable, and the lost. Stories that will unlock something inside of you and carry you through fear to your future. Get your copy of the Lift's First Anthology on Amazon in print and Kindle. Let's go for a read. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to episode number 823 of the Wicked Library. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for listening. As you just heard, you can now add the written anthology for The Lift to your own Wicked Library. Featuring all new stories written by Wicked Library alum authors and illustrations by Jeanette Andromeda, your purchase helps support our shows and the authors. Head to victoriaslift.com forward slash read to get your copy from Amazon. And for a limited time, if you tag at Wicked Library on Twitter with a picture of you reading the paperback, the librarian will send you a special mystery package with a key to the library, lifetime memberships to our archives, stickers, and more. The Wicked Library does rely on the support of our patrons and members to keep making the show. If you want to be a part of helping us keep making it, sign up today at patreon.com forward slash wicked library or at thewickedlibrary.com. A big thank you to those who took the time to rate us five stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Your ratings do help others find the show. And of course, we love hearing from you. Now, today's episode is our fall anthology episode with stories by Aaron Palmer, Brooke Wara, and Jessica McHugh. Today's stories are accompanied by custom scores, written, of course, by our resident composer, Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams. Please, if you enjoy the stories you hear on the show, find the work of the authors and buy their work. It helps keep them making more. You can find out more about all our authors and find links to their work on their bio pages at thewickedlibrary.com. Now, let's get wicked. Warning. If you haven't figured out that the Wicked Library has strong themes of an adult, sometimes violent and decidedly scary nature, then by all means, keep listening. Go on, it's just that you're not going to complain about it. Oh, you can try, but you'll be scoffed at and ridiculed mercilessly by the host, the narrators, the producers, and you could bet your dangling participle me. Go ahead, try it. 
You're not going to like it one little bit, but our millions of listeners will eat it up. <laughs> and that's not hyperbole, kiddies. So there's your warning. Enjoy the show, kiddies. <laughs> something else grabs hold of you. Don't worry about the lights. It's darker than ever now. Stop screaming. Something extra wicked this way comes. <laughs> Today's first story is told by Mike Delgadio, Graham Rowett, David Alt, and yours truly. The Madman of Paris by Aaron Palmer I first met Howard Rathbone during an argument with his landlord. Having come to the apartments on the Rue Monsieur le Prince to visit a friend of mine, my train of thought was disrupted by someone talking very heatedly in French and another man responding in a gravelly Boston accent. Je ne comprends pas. Je seulement parle un peu français, and you know that, you bastard. I looked over and saw a thin, middle-aged man, the French speaker, gesticulating at the tallest man I had ever seen. The tall man had wild, unkempt hair that hung down to his shoulders, and although it was nearly noon, he was dressed in his nightshirt. He was glowering down at the landlord, who barely came up to his chin. His long-fingered hands clenched and unclenched as the older man continued to berate him. The poor landlord seemed to think that if he spoke French slowly and loudly enough, his tenant would understand him. I walked over and offered to translate. It transpired that the issue was the tall man's piano playing. He played dark, frantic melodies that sometimes lasted until the sun rose. The other tenants had had enough, and he was keeping them from their studies and their sleep, and in some cases, the landlord said, even frightening their children. But I must practice, said the tall man. I have nowhere else to play. How am I to improve if I cannot practice? The landlord responded that he did not care, and that the tall man could drag his piano into the street and play for centimes if he wished, but he could no longer play in the apartments. As I translated this last, the tall man's nostrils flared and his eyes widened. He took a step forward to the landlord. I came between them, put my hand on his chest, and drew him off to the side. Come on now, man. There's nowhere else you can practice. Where do you take lessons? The tall man responded that he had no teacher. Not anymore. Well, I'm sure you'll be able to think of something. But assaulting your landlord won't help matters. The tall man glared at me, but relented and said, Tell him I won't play in the apartments any longer. I related the message, and the landlord looked visibly relieved. I turned back to the tall man, but he had already spun on his heel and retreated to his rooms. Merci beaucoup pour votre aide, monsieur. The landlord said, De rien. I responded, smiling at him. The man left, and I continued to my friend's dwelling. I relayed the curious occurrence to my companion, who laughed. Ah, yes. <laughs> Howard Rathbone. You know him? Eh, not well. I've spoken with him a few times. 
Never more than small talk. He seems gruff, but harmless. He has a bit of a temper, it would appear. I <laughs> wouldn't be surprised. But he's never caused any serious trouble that I know of. Honestly, I feel a bit sorry for him. He doesn't do anything except play that chilling music. And now, he can't even do that. I'm not sure what he's going to do with himself. It struck me just then that my studio space was far too large for my needs at present. I had a few workers under me and no large projects at the moment. There would be plenty of room for him to practice there if I were inclined to offer it. I considered for a bit, sipping my tea. I knew from experience that acts of kindness to the unlovable were oftentimes just the thing needed to make them a little more humane. It would be no great bother to me, nor likely any of the people that lived nearby. He couldn't possibly play loud enough to seriously disturb them. I made the decision to offer my space to him and went down to his rooms to make my proposition. A softness came into Rathbone's eyes when I made the offer. Is it far? No, not at all. Would you like to have a look at it? He shook his head jerkily and waved a hand. No, I'm sure it'll be fine. Thank you. Give me the address and I'll hire some men to move my piano. I did so and asked him if he wanted to meet me at a nearby cafe at 2 o'clock for coffee. If I was going to be sharing my studio space with him, I wanted to know him better. He smiled with no mirth whatsoever. For wine, he said, and turned and retreated back to his rooms. We met at the appointed time. True to his word, he immediately ordered a bottle of red wine. As he awaited it, he seemed curiously agitated and frightened. He had insisted on sitting with his back towards the wall, and his eyes kept flicking over my shoulder towards the door and front windows. I asked if all was well, and he replied that it was nothing, that he was of a naturally nervous disposition. He relaxed visibly when the wine was brought, and poured a glass and took a deep draft. He gave me his name and told me his story. He had come to Paris two years ago in the hopes of causing a sensation, such as Louis Moreau Gottschalk had fifty years before. But his own performance at the Salle Playel had been a disaster. His teacher had begged him to play pieces by Chopin, Liszt, and Thalberg, but once on stage, he ignored the program entirely and performed his own compositions. His lip curled as he recounted the baffled crowd's reaction, the shocked muttering audible even over the piano, and the slow trickle of bodies out of the concert hall as, one by one, they left in disgust. What sort of music do you play? I asked him. The landlord said his music had been dark. But Mussorgsky's Night on Bald Mountain was dark, and I knew that had been performed at the Exposition Universelle to great acclaim. Music like you've never heard before, Rathbone replied. He drained his glass, refilled it, and drank deeply again. Perhaps you should eat something, I commented. He ignored this and continued. Anyway, I acquired a bit of a reputation after that. Not even the seediest cafe would let me play. Le Fou de Paris, they called me told it means the madman of Paris. I fell in with a group of decadents for a short while, laudanum drinkers and Baudelaire lovers. They cared little for music. Now I just play for me. What do you do for money? My family sends me an allowance. Have you ever thought about moving back to America, if you have family there? He gave another of his mirthless smiles. They are, in essence, paying me to stay away from them. I wondered if I had, perhaps, been too hasty in letting him use my studio to practice. But on the other hand, I sympathized with him. Creative circles could be so orthodox. Several of my more inventive sculptures would likely never see the light of day. Just then, however, 
my thoughts were interrupted by a curious occurrence. In the middle of lifting the glass to his lips, Rathbone's eyes flicked again over my shoulder to the front of the cafe, and they grew very wide. He set down the glass with a loud clunk, his face pale as milk. His eyes remained fixed on the front window. I turned around but could see nothing out of the ordinary, just passers-by going about their business. Are you all right? I asked. For a minute, he did not speak. Only when I said his name did he give a start and look quickly back at me. Yes, he said, but it was plain that he was not. Sweat shimmered along his brow. He still gripped the stem of the wine glass, and I could see it shaking in his trembling hands. As I said, I have a nervous disposition. Wine helps. He drained the glass. Did not look to me like it was helping much, but I did not wish to argue with him. He poured another, emptying the bottle. His eyes returned to the front window and remained there. What exactly is it that troubles you, Mr. Rathbone? I did have some experience dealing with emotional disorders. A friend of mine was similarly afflicted. I would prefer not to speak of it, he said softly. He took a gigantic draft, nearly half the glass. What is the time? I pulled out my watch. Nearly 2.30. The movers will be at my apartment at 3. Why don't you tell me something of yourself? And then we can leave. Very well. I told him of my own artistic aspirations, my idolization of Augustus St. Godin, and my family back in New York, who encouraged me to pursue my desires and gave me the means to do so. As I spoke... His eyes did not leave the front of the cafe, and the color did not return to his face. The first time I heard Rathbone play, I was shocked. It was nothing like Mussorgsky. He put notes together in the most demented of ways, his fingers everywhere at once, scurrying across the keys of his piano like centipedes, bringing forth horrifying atmospheres of madness. I had some small knowledge of music and could see that he was very skilled, but he followed no key or scale that I knew of. The high notes shrieked at the touch of his right hand, while the left pounded out chillingly deep passages that evoked such doom the hair on my arms stood on end. The look on his face as he played was frightful. His eyes were wide, his teeth bared in a vicious snarl. I could easily see how he had come by his moniker. Though I had previously entertained fantasies of being pleasantly serenaded while I was working, I immediately told Rathbone that he could not play when we were in the studio. The reason I gave was that it would distract us from our labors, but truth be told, I did not want to hear playing such as that ever again. He grudgingly agreed. He would come in every day at four o'clock as we were finishing up. He would give a gruff good afternoon to me, he never said anything to my co-workers, and sit down at the piano, waiting for us to leave. The moment the door closed on our backs, the malevolent music would begin. Whenever I caught a whiff of his breath, it always smelled of wine, and once or twice I heard the satchel he carried clink. According to those who lived near the studio, he played almost without ceasing until the very late hours. As best as I could tell, he seemed to have no life beyond drinking and the piano. With the permission of my friends, I took to inviting him to dinner, but he would always rebuff me. I must play, he said. Given that he was not playing for anyone but himself, I was baffled at this fanatical devotion. Eventually, I gave up asking. One morning, a very troubling event occurred. I came in early, before any of my co-workers, and found Rathbone lying on the floor next to his piano, 
a puddle of vomit by his head, empty wine bottles strewn about. To my relief, he woke up at a sharp shake of his shoulder. Water, he rasped. I fetched him some water from a pitcher we kept in the studio, and he gulped it down greedily. Mr. Rathbone, I said without preamble, I'm concerned about your drinking. He cursed at me, slurring. He's still drunk, I realized. I must drink, he growled. It helps. Helps what? I demanded. It certainly doesn't look like it's helping anything right now. He blinked at me, eyes unfocused. Drinking keeps it away. I was nonplussed. Keeps what away? I asked. I don't know why or what I did, but it follows me everywhere. It started when I was 20. It's been on my heels ever since. Drinking and playing keep it away. What is it, man? I was beginning to grow frustrated. I don't know. Well, what does it look like? At this, he grew very pale. He shook his head violently and would not utter another word, no matter how hard I pressed him. This man belongs in a sanitarium, I thought. I helped him to his feet and guided him to a chair. As I made to go clean up the sick on the floor, he reached out and grabbed me by the coat. Please don't make me leave. I have to play. Playing and drinking, they keep it at bay. I'm sorry for causing you trouble. I won't drink so much, I swear. Just please. I need to play. He looked so wretched that I knelt and patted him on the shoulder. There, there, I said. I won't keep you from playing. I thought a lie the best course of action at that moment. However, I would like you to speak to a doctor. I know a man who specializes in patients with your nervous disposition. Very well. Now, let me clean this up and I'll walk you home. It wasn't truly a lie, I thought. I won't keep you from playing. However, if Dr. Beauvais decides you need to be committed to an asylum, then that is out of my hands. However, Dr. Beauvais pronounced him perfectly sane. He admits to seeing this figure, Beauvais said, but says he knows perfectly well it isn't real, and that startling though it may be, he has learned to ignore it. That's not the mark of a lunatic, Montague. I remained silent, full of doubts. His playing helps, he says, Beauvais continued. It uh, allows him to focus his thoughts elsewhere. I'm sure that's the reason for his drinking as well. Although I agree with you that it's uh, concerning, I think the best thing to do in this case, Montague, would be to allow him to continue using your studio to play and lay down some strict rules for him to follow. I'm concerned about the effect not being able to play would have on his mind as he has nowhere else to go for it. Hopefully in time he can learn to find solace entirely in music rather than alcohol. He seemed quite convinced of this figure's reality when I found him the other morning, I said. He was also quite intoxicated. Alcohol has the nasty effect of worsening these sorts of disorders, however much the afflicted may fear that it helps. I considered for a moment. It now seemed clear that his behavior in the cafe was due to him having glimpsed this figure. And while he did not seem able to ignore it at all then... His refusal to speak of it suggested that he was aware of how such a claim would be perceived. This at least indicated that Dr. Beauvais was correct. Very well, I said. I will defer to your judgment. I informed Rathbone that he must drink less, which he has already agreed to. I also informed him that if there was ever any damage to the work we were doing, that he and his piano would be out on the street. He agreed. 
All seemed to go well for a time. No further alarming incidents occurred. Our projects remained unmolested. Upon entering the studio, Rathbone would open his satchel and show me the single wine bottle there. After some weeks, the satchel began to be completely empty. He appeared quite proud of himself, and I was proud of him. He started smiling at me when he bid me good afternoon, and would give polite nods to some of the workers. Once, I even heard him whistling. Every now and then, I would lag behind to speak with him, ask how he was faring. He reported a generally happier mood since drinking less. He still glimpsed at the figure, he said, but his ability to ignore it and cope with the fear it inspired had improved. He was starting to focus more on his playing and was considering retaining the services of an instructor once again, that he might learn to tailor his music to the tastes of the public and thus have greater opportunities to perform. I wholeheartedly encouraged this decision, as playing seemed to be helping him so. One day, however, he came into the studio looking very shaken. When I asked what was amiss, he refused to say, but he asked my permission to lock the door and windows after we left. Each day following, he appeared more frightened and furtive. Once, I glimpsed him on the street walking up to the studio. He was moving as fast as he could without running and kept throwing terrified glances behind him. He flung open the door to the studio and slammed it shut, breathing heavily, looking like a man who had just found sanctuary in a church. Eventually, the aura of fear around him lessened, but he was now treating my workers and me even more gruffly than before. Neighbors reported that his playing had reached new heights of darkness and frenzy. I smelled wine on his breath often and began to suspect he was drinking heavily again. When questioned about it, he would always respond that he had simply had one glass before starting on his way and show me his empty satchel. Then, one of my workers found a bottle atop an unused scaffolding. Another search of the studio revealed no less than eight hidden wine bottles. That was that. I told Rathbone that he had the evening to arrange for his piano to be moved elsewhere. He cried and apologized and swore he would never drink again and begged me for another chance. But I was firm. Looking utterly defeated, he muttered, Very well, sir. Later that night, however, after a conversation with my wife, I began to rethink my decision. He had been doing so well before. Perhaps, if given another chance, he could improve again. I was not a heavy drinker myself, and knew little of the mind of one who was. But surely, I reasoned, setbacks were to be expected when one was trying to temper a vice. And it was not as though he had damaged anything we were working on. I asked myself, if I were in a similar situation, wouldn't I want to be offered another chance? I resolved to extend a helping hand to him once more. I fetched my hat and cloak and set off into the cold, rainy night. I could hear the hellish music before I even reached the studio. I tried the door. He had locked it. As the handle rattled in my grip, the music stopped and I could hear a terrified shriek come from inside. I fished the key from my pocket and unlocked the door. But when I pressed it inward, it moved only a little and would not budge any farther. Something was blocking it. Rathbone. I called. What is the meaning of this? It's Montague. Let me in. I heard him walk up to the door and began shifting whatever heavy thing was in front of it. At length, he finished and stumbled aside to let me in. I looked around. He had barricaded the door with several sacks of plaster. I shut the door against the rain and turned to him. I had only to look at him briefly to tell that he was stupefyingly drunk. 
His face was red, his eyes unfocused. Before I could speak, he began to sob. It won't leave me alone, he said. I see it constantly. It's closer every time. I'm sorry I drank again, but I couldn't face it anymore. It was getting worse. I felt as though there was no hope of it ever leaving, and the fear was unbearable. Something had to change. I reached over to pat his shoulder and was about to tell him that he had another chance at salvation when he went completely still. His drink-blotched face turned pale. I followed his gaze. He had seen something through the window. It's here, he whispered. There came a violent knock at the door. Rathbone screamed and began to whimper. Who's there? I called. I received no answer, only another booming knock. It's come for me, Rathbone sobbed. It's done toying with me, it's finally come. Rathbone, I'm sure it's just one of my workers. I moved towards the door, but he grabbed my arm. Don't let it in, he cried. I shook free easily, his grip was weak from the drink. As I went to the door, Rathbone began to sprint towards the back of the studio. Another great knock shook the door as I reached towards the handle. I opened it, and there was no one there. I heard a scream of despair from behind me, and a clattering. Rathbone was climbing one of the scaffolds. It reached nearly to the ceiling. I began to shout for him to come down. Just then, I had the sensation of something brushing past me. I immediately felt so cold that my teeth began to chatter. A horrible feeling began to make its way across my skin, as though countless spiders were crawling all over me. Rathbone had reached the top of the scaffolding. He bent his knees, and I realized too late what he was doing. I screamed for him to stop, but he had already jumped. He plummeted down and hit the floor head first. I could hear his neck snap from across the studio. I ran over to him, but there was nothing that could be done. I stood there, trembling with shock until reason made its way into my brain and I realized that I must fetch the police. Suddenly, I became aware of something standing next to me. I turned my head slowly. There was nothing there, and yet I could feel its presence in the room as surely as Rathbone's body on the ground. A horrible squelching sound filled the air. I whipped my gaze down to the floor. Rathbone's body was decaying before my eyes. I could see the muscles in his face wither, see the skin turn green and rot away. A hideous smell reached my nostrils, and I gagged and nearly vomited. Then, I felt the presence disappear. I was alone in my studio, and the leering skeleton that had once been Howard Rathbone lay on the floor in front of me. Where do you think you're going? There's more story to come! <laughs> Don't you want us to keep the lights on? <laughs> Up next, a tale told by Jessica McAvoy. Cold Beer, Cheap Cigarettes, 24 Hours, by Brooke Wara. Oppo McKinnon, you better get that son of a bitchin' gun out of my face before I call your ma and pa and tell them what you're up to down here. I swear to ever-loving Christ, Oppo, you goddamn fool, your daddy's gonna hide your ass. How many times I gotta tell your sorry butt, you can't rob the only store in town. Your face ain't no secret under that mask. 
I changed your damn nappies until you were four years old, Oppo. Four years old! Your ma always did spoil you. That's probably why you never left her. You sit in that goddamn barn all day drinking your goddamn beer with your daddy's social security money and come down here with pantyhose over your head, you baboon, and rob us blind when you run out. Well, for fuck's sake, Oppo, take your beer and go home. I won't even call the sheriff this time if you just get that fucking gun out of my fucking face. Bobby Patterson, who had worked at the one-stop shop since high school and that darn senior had knocked her up before skedaddling town on a football scholarship, was accustomed to all manner of hijinks from the locals. She had been robbed by Oppo no less than seven times. Maybe things worked differently out there in the real world, the world she only viewed through the 13 inches of her hand-me-down television set. But here in her town, most of the time the sheriff was content to give ol' Oppo here a slap on the wrist. Maybe implore his paw to give the boy some extra work around the farm, why don't ya? Oppo was generally harmless, after all. At least, before this night he had been. Bobby had suspected something might be terribly different about Oppo terribly wrong, when just ten minutes before, she had witnessed him lumbering down the street, dragging a dead raccoon on a rope behind him. What in the hell? Bobby's shiny, plum-colored lips had gaped. That's when Oppo had walked in and pointed his 12-gauge straight at her Farrah Fawcett do. Lord, she had never cussed so many cuss words in one breath in her life the way she had cussed Oppo. But she was just so scared. And besides, the boy had never brought a gun before, God please forgive her. Their faces ain't right, Oppo said. He didn't seem to be talking to her so much as to himself, Bobby felt. His eyes had a shocked, funny, unfocused look to them. Lord God, their faces ain't right. What are you talking about, Oppo? And what the heck are you doing with that dead critter? And can you please put that gun down? Bobby was about ready to piddle her panties. Oppo seemed to see Bobby's face for the first time. He gulped once, twice, and nodded. Yeah, yes, of course, sorry, Bobby. He lowered the gun. He looked down at the dead raccoon that was making a black, bloody mess on the floor she had just mopped and blinked. We'll need food he said. Bobby shook her head. You have right lost your marbles, Oppo. You truly have. Bobby! Oppo lunged at her, startling the piss out of her. You could come with me. I could save you. Grab some supplies. Grab whatever you can carry. No, wait. Do you have your car here, Bobby? No, they'd hear that. Better to walk. Oppo was getting that funny, faraway look in his eyes again and swinging the shotgun around in wild arcs while he talked. Bobby inched a hand toward the store's landline. She wondered if she could knock off the receiver and hit the speed dial for the police department before Oppo caught her. Now listen here, Oppo, Bobby said. I don't know what shine you've been drinking that's got you so wound up. I know I've heard stories about men being real hard up for a drink and chugging down mouthwash and turpentine. Can you imagine? I mean... You ain't drinking paint thinner, are you, Oppo? Oppo's face fell, and to Bobby, 
It seemed his heart dropped at a speed so fast it was liable to come crashing through the cracked linoleum beneath her feet and make a hole so big he would go tumbling after it into the bowels of the earth. He looked at Bobby with cloying eyes and said, Oh, Bobby, I'm so sorry. I understand. You didn't see them. You don't understand. You didn't see their faces. It ain't right, Bobby. What I seen ain't right. It's not natural. His whole body shuddered with a memory of a nightmare. She lifted a hand, compelled to comfort the sniveling bear of a man in front of her. She had never seen a man look so sad. Oppo's tears dripped onto his blood-spattered coveralls. Oppo, what did you do? Bobby asked. What I had to do, Oppo said. He sighed, wiped the snot from his face with his sleeve. I am sorry, Bobby. I really did always like you. Wait! Oppo McKinnon raised his 12-gauge shotgun and fired first at Bobby, opening a baseball-sized wound in her belly, before eating the barrel and blowing off the top of his own head. Bobby, Oppo, and the raccoon each lay in their own expanding pools of coagulating blood, their bodies stiffening on the linoleum floor under the flickering light from the neon sign in the window that read, Cold beer, cheap cigarettes, 24 hours. It was 4 a.m. All over town, people woke to their alarms and readied themselves for their shifts at the docks and lumber yards or the hospitals in the next town over. They planned to drop in at the one-stop shop and grab their black coffees, muffins, and newspapers. Inside the last house on Badger Road, Sven Yarvenin screamed at the sight of his own wife's face and butchered her, and himself, with a hatchet. Once again, Jessica McAvoy. Spineless by Brooke Wara. You fucking spineless worm, Conrad! Yvette, or Giselle, or Brigitte, or whatever this one's name was, shrieked in exasperation before slamming the door. Connie listened to the sound of her expensive heels clacking indignantly down the corridor, heard the pause. Her dramatic exit had been interrupted by the mundane task of waiting for the elevator that would take her the 15 flights down to the street, where a car would whisk her scrawny ass back to whatever ghetto she had originated from a few months ago. So many, many Yvettes had stormed out in the same loud, self-righteous manner, wounded tornadoes of Chanel perfume and angry clicking heels. Yet, uncharacteristically, Connie found himself momentarily curious about this one. He wouldn't miss her, certainly not. But still, he wondered, trying to remember what she had confided, if anything, about her home life. Her life before he'd plucked her out of the hotel bar. They all thought they were goddamned Julia Roberts, and he was fucking Richard Gere. He mused and poured himself another drink. 
He chuckled at the lifeless blob in the bottom of his top-shelf bottle of liquor. To the worm, he shouted at the ding of the elevator finally arriving down the hallway. Was she going home now to a half a dozen brats and an elderly, overworked grandmother tending to all those snotty noses? Would she walk in, an exotic traveler bearing gifts from worlds those brats and that grandmother never dreamed to enter? Jasmine-scented hotel soaps, lavender linen sprays, expensive perfumes, sequin halter tops, and mini schnapps bottles? Would a bumpkin with matted hair and an unraveling nightie teeter across the room in those $500 mules he'd bought her last week? Did the grandmother tuck her into bed on that worn, stained sofa under a sweetly hand-crocheted blanket and say hopefully, pitifully, You know, you could always stay here with me and the children. They need their mama. He shook his head. What the hell did he care? She'd either get an abortion or add his unruly seed to her menagerie of children. Connie watched out the window as a vet, or Giselle, or Brigitte, left the building and marched right past the driver he'd ordered for her, down the street to the bus stop. She stopped once to turn around, drop her suitcase, and flip him the bird. Double-fisted birds. Yeah, she was pissed. He chuckled and sipped another shot of tequila, knocking the glass against his grin and chipping a tooth. Son of a bitch, he spat, and half his incisor fell into his palm as he cupped his jaw in pain. He threw the glass down, and instead of shattering satisfactorily, it thudded softly against the plush carpet. He grabbed the bottle and swallowed the booze straight. The exposed nerve throbbed in his mouth, then dulled and became numb with the alcohol. He took another swig and forgot Yvette. Connie reached up to stroke the jagged edge of his broken tooth, and as he did, the entire thing fell out. The tooth cartwheeled across his floor, leaving a trail of blood as it did. What the hell? He mumbled, feeling the empty space with his tongue. And then, suddenly, a budge. Shit! He swore again and his mouth was forming the hard sound of the consonant T when another tooth flew out of his mouth, skittered across the glass tabletop, and plinked against the tequila bottle before resting. Hours later, standing over the bathroom sink, he'd extracted all of his teeth, one by one, aided only by a pair of pliers and the tequila. Before his mind became unable to ponder such things, or anything at all. He briefly wondered why he'd done it, except that he'd felt a strange, overpowering compulsion to carry on with it, pulling one pearly white after another from his gelatinous, weeping gums, until all that was left was his sagging, empty face. And now, just a puckered hole where his mouth should be. But no matter... He wasn't able to think such worrisome thoughts now, anyway. He scooped the shattered teeth out of the sink to examine them, but immediately dropped them back in again, where they scattered and circled the drain. A ragged edge of a tooth had cut him, 
torn a hole down the palm of his hand. He stared at the wound, curious. He poked at the tender flesh. It sank easily against the pressure from his fingertip. He noticed, for the first time, the gray, rubbery texture of his skin. He pulled at the edge of the wound with his fingernail and began flicking chunks of the meat of his palm into the sink alongside his discarded teeth. Underneath the tear in his palm, a shiny pink pulpiness glistened, beckoned him, urged him on. He began to tear fervently at the wound, and while the apartment filled with the wet, sucking sounds of flesh, the worm bobbed alive at the bottom of Connie's tequila bottle. Hey, where do you think you're going? There's more stories here at the Wicked Library. Stick around, or we'll turn the lights off for good. <laughs> And now, a story by Jessica McHugh, told by your librarian. What you get for caring, a valediction from the doghouse, by Jessica McHugh. In cramped and slimy barracks, where hope corrodes like lie, I found a horde of angels I thought vanished from my life. Though colonized by mites and fleas, and mad with years of whining pleas, I wrapped them up in my disease, and prayed it wouldn't spread. But prayers have never helped me. Just ask the shelves of ash, or ask the men now closing in who say through howl and gnash, The world I built is nearly through. There's nothing left for me to do but spend my final time with you, who raised me from the dead. You, the first who needed me and gave me strength to live, whose pain outshone mine alone and ran through me like a sieve. You saw me with such clarity, I found my faith in charity and grief became a rarity when sheathed in fur and blood. But grief's a witchy trickster who writes in magic ink, and inward rants once faded reappeared within a blink. Again, I faced the gates of hell to free more misfits from their cells. I rang out joys instead of knells, the way a mother should. Starting out with only three, I followed all the rules, but the more I saved, the more folks changed soon. They were so cruel. I had to venture out of town. I'd thought I'd laid my duties down. They'd rather watch the darlings drown than let us live in peace. They refused to understand my children. Oh, my dears, a unique family unit. So bedeviled by their fears, they sought to separate us and used shame to desecrate us. But our pack, so fierce, courageous, broke free of every leash. Yes, I bent a couple rules and slipped a couple bills, and for sure I did go overboard when I poured the pills, but once inside I couldn't balk. 
You can't save lives with only talk. They had to take the same long walk into an endless sleep. I can't help it was worth it. I can't help it was right. When your mind lives in darkness, shifting shadows feels like light. And you shifty little children who made mother saint and villain, let this be our coalition. We'll show them we are free. It can't endure forever. The best things never do. Our home might end up nothing but a muddy roadside zoo. Despite the love we've amassed, the officers are coming fast, and anesthesia cannot last, so please begin the meal. Give the kids the easy parts, start with my little toes. Leave for them the fleshy bits like my earlobes and my nose. The rest of you can scrape the bone, rip me apart, rebuild your home. Your mama's proud of how you've grown, with love in every squeal. There's joy in all this pressure. It's like embracing God in the guts of orphan children between their fang and claw. I know there's not much to archive, but deep inside I'm still alive. For the first time I might just thrive in annals beyond men. Don't be afraid of killing now that you've got the taste. I've got it too, but can't undo the feasting taking place. But if you feel the same dark pull, and find that you are not quite full, cut off your sweet domestic wool, and you'll escape again. Stay hungry for your freedom, the only way to heal. A wound stretched wide by humans is to make yourself a meal, that nourishes both lie and truth, and teaches them by blood and tooth. We all must act a bit uncouth, to save the ones who stray. Bury me and carry me, and don't forget the heart. Whoever eats the last of me, remember with each part. Though soaked in fear and loneliness, I found a way to cope with this. So kiss me now and take my lips. I've nothing more to say. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production, ninthstory.com. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. You can be a part of helping us keep the shows coming for as little as $2 a month. Wicked Library is proud to have Booth Junkie as one of our partners. Booth Junkie is a YouTube channel dedicated to the tech of at-home professional voiceover created by the very talented Mike Delgadio. You can find the channel by going to boothjunkie.com. We're also excited to have our longtime art contributor and interviewer for Season 7, Jeanette Andromeda, as one of our partners. Jeanette is an illustrator exploring the world and creating arty adventures. Watch her channel to see her unique take on art and horror as she shares her process. Find her channel at youtube.com forward slash Jeanette Andromeda. Complete credits and full show notes, including links and information from today's episode, can be found on thewickedlibrary.com. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes pages. Until next time, go ahead, leave the lights on. It makes it easier for Krampus to find you. Ha 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 ha!